0: As we continue our series through following Elijah and Elisha, we've been now introduced to Elisha. He's on the scene, um, but this Sunday we stay just with Elijah in 1 Kings 21. 1 Kings 21, verses 1 through 29. If you're looking for where um, 1 Kings would be, um, you're still going to be in the Old Testament, um, and so... Joshua judges Ruth. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. We're in First Kings, and then First and Second Chronicles follow that. First Kings twenty-one, verses one through twenty-nine. This is the story of um, Ahab seizing a vineyard from Naboth, the vineyard owner. And so, as we gather together today, we'll focus on this vineyard and these two main characters, Ahab. And Naboth. But before we go to God's Word together, let's pray. God, may your Word be our rule, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and the glory of Christ our primary concern. Speak to us, O Lord, that we may hear your Word and not only hear it, but embrace it that it may not just be on our hearts but that it may be in our hearts that it may not just be something for today but that we may be mindful of your love and kindness throughout the week lord all of this we pray through your holy spirit amen oops First Kings, chapter 21, verses 1 through 29. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal upon them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting, and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seek two scoundrels opposite him, and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the word of the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also, Concerning Jezebel, the Lord says dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. There is never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife, and he behaved in the vilest of manner by going after idols like the Amorites. The Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. An inheritance is a strange thing, isn't it? This is, uh, it's a little bit dark and maybe hard to see, but there's several different paintings of this encounter between Ahab and Naboth. And there's a particular um, late Renaissance painting that's among my favorite because you don't really see much of the vineyard because the focus isn't on the vineyard. We don't know if it's just the best and most wonderful vineyard there ever was or if Ahab just wants it for the convenience of where it is because Ahab, after all, doesn't want the vineyard for a vineyard. He wants the vineyard so that he can plant a vegetable garden in its place. It's all about convenience. It's, it's only a business transaction to Ahab. And he's not even going to use the land the way it's intended. Ahab comes to Naboth with all the authority of a king and tells him just to give him his vineyard. He'll even treat him fairly for it. But the response, Naboth's response, is that he cannot give away the inheritance of his ancestors even though this this vineyard in many ways is Naboth's to do with whatever he wants, he will not, in fact, he cannot bring himself to give up the inheritance of his ancestors. An inheritance is a strange thing, isn't it? An inheritance is something we mostly think about only in terms of estate gifts, money or property that's passed down from one generation to the next. And we might be a little bit limited in thinking of the big picture or engaging more the biblical worldview of what an inheritance meant. We think about money and property that passes along at the time of someone's death. But the biblical worldview is more than that. It includes more than just property Mistile your stool, Scott, but I'll give it back. It's more than just money and property. An inheritance, as defined by Merriam Webster, verse um, definition A, is the act of inheriting property. We understand this one, we can see this one. The second definition is the reception of genetic qualities by transmission from parent to offspring. This one we can understand a little bit more to know that it's more than just property. To think as much as you might want to cut yourself off from your family and say that you made your own person, that you are who you are, what you can't deny is that your genetics, the very DNA that makes you who you are in part, came from your mother and your father. So we can understand that inheritance is maybe even genetic. Reception of genetic qualities. Inheritance is good and bad. Some people have good genes. Some of us, on the other hand, maybe have uh, genes that put us at higher risk for certain diseases. And we think, why do we have to inherit those things too? One of my dad's favorite phrases for me is, what you see is what you'll be. (laughs) Especially when I notice things like a receding hairline or, or different things about my body, my dad loves to chime in, what you see is what you'll be. And he's not wrong. He's on to something. There is an inheritance that just happens by default, that you're just going to get things from your parents, whether you wanted them or not. Maybe that's, you know, wonderful things in terms of your genetics. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a um, a great amount of, of wealth and money, or maybe it's a debt. Maybe it's a whole mess of an estate. Either way, it'll eventually be your problem or your joy. But the third trait, the third definition of inheritance perhaps just pushes us a little bit closer to the biblical worldview that Naboth is responding to Ahab with. The third definition of inheritance is the acquisition of a possession, condition, or trait from past generations. Meaning it's more than just what you see is what you'll be. Possessions, conditions, or traits This definition reflects what we understand to be the sins of the father are the sins of the son. The sins of the parents are the sins of the offspring. We receive traits, both maybe genetically but also modeled for us. Have you ever known a really angry person who had a very angry child? It's almost as if you could watch their temper be handed down from generation to generation. We inherit maybe more than what we want maybe more than what we want to admit. Inheritance is a strange thing because you got it simply because of who you were born to or where you were born. Inheritance really comes to us in many ways. It's from our parents. We inherit things from our culture, from our society, from our country. Considering that it's Independence Day weekend or the closest weekend to it, Um, There's plenty of fireworks already, ask anyone with a toddler or a dog. We think about the fact, quite simply, that we all have inherited certain things just by nature of being here in the U.S., and for many of us, we didn't do anything to earn or deserve that. Some have, but yet we all inherited the same opportunities, the same freedoms, just by nature of where we are and where we were born. Inheritance ties us to something. And inheritance raises some questions, too. Like, is this really mine? I mean, if you inherit money, is it yours to do whatever you want with? Ultimately, yes. At the moment of inheritance, it is yours to do with what you would want. And maybe there's questions and intents and desires for what you should do with certain things, But ultimately, that's not up to the person passing it on. That's up to the inheritor. That's why the parable of the prodigal son is so troubling. Because a son took his inheritance and ran off with it and squandered it. Because he was entitled to it, and he took it with a sense of entitlement and squandered it all. Inheritance can be misused and abused as much as it can be used to bless and protect We inherit all kinds of things. Our genes, our looks, even to a certain degree, Thomas Bouchard of University of Minnesota would say our IQ is somewhat genetically inherited. But what's the intent of an inheritance? That's the difference between Ahab and Naboth. Ahab also has an inheritance. Ahab inherited the throne. He inherited the king, the kingship of Israel. But he inherited it not with any intent to rule God's people the way they are intent to be ruled. He did not inherit the throne with a sense of responsibility, but he inherited it and thought he could do with it whatever he wished. Naboth, on the other hand, has inherited a vineyard. We're not told much about it other than it's close to the palace. But for Naboth... Having that vineyard is the inheritance of his ancestors. He is tied to it in many, many ways. And so he won't even give it to the king when asked because this is his inheritance. This, of course, causes some friction between them. It's, it's misuse and abuse for Ahab in the first place to ask if he can use his vineyard as a vegetable garden. And maybe that's what gets a little bit of Naboth's gumption to stand up to the king, as he might be insulted. I imagine, I'm not going to try to pick on anyone today, but I imagine if I went to Dwayne and Karen Campice and asked if I could take all of their blueberry fields and disc up, the, disc up the blueberry bushes, burn them all off, and maybe plant some sweet corn there instead. That's nothing against sweet corn. Once again, I am going to Iowa this week. But it does have a lot to do with the intent of what the ground was used for, what it's tied to. And it's more than just the dollar amount. It's more than the value. It's the work and investment and energy that's been put into those vines or those blueberry bushes. And for Naboth, he has a responsibility to take his inheritance, to tend the vines, to be the best vineyard keeper that he can be so that he can pass on his vineyard to his descendants just like Naboth inherited it from his ancestors. We have an inheritance but of course Ahab doesn't like being told no. And I guess as I read through this text a few times this week I hope you can see this a little bit. Anybody know who this is? Prince Prince John from Robin Hood, right? And you might know the song he sulks around and sucks his thumb when he cannot get his way, too late to be known as John the first he should have been known as John the worst. This is a great picture. For us to think of Ahab with. Because at the moment where Ahab was told no, he just stops eating. He flounders about. He's sullen. He's fasting. He's just whining because someone told him no. And so it is that the king of Israel who rules in Samaria, when told that he can't have something, he goes about sullen, like Prince John from Robin Hood. But then what he does with his inheritance next is the real sin. Because Jezebel says, you know what, I'll get you your vineyard if you want it. And Ahab, who has inherited the throne, has inherited power, just freely lets it be used and abused by someone else. Jezebel uses Ahab's seal. She writes letters in his name. Because Ahab has abdicated his responsibility of the throne. He gives it away to be used and abused by someone else. And of course, this leads to murder. This leads to bearing false testimony against your neighbor, to, to lies. This leads to several different breaks, not only of the Ten Commandments, but of other Old Testament law. It, it uses an abuse of the system by which two witnesses are needed to verify a testimony. And Jezebel knows that just well enough to get two scoundrels who don't care about bearing false testimony, who are willing to say whatever they want to throw somebody under the bus. And so Ahab's inheritance of the crown, of the power, of the authority, of the throne is abused. And Naboth just got caught in the way. And he's stoned to death because he said no to someone who was misusing their inheritance. And Naboth said no. Naboth took responsibility of his inheritance because he cared about it. Because he saw value more than just the dollar amount. There is a responsibility to it. The intent of a vineyard being handed down for the next person is to continue tending the vines, to retire the old ones, to plant new ones, to keep a succession of healthy vines going so that a healthy vineyard can be handed down to the next generation. And quite honestly, there is a responsibility of the vine keepers of the Old Testament to make enough good grapes to make good wine. But this inheritance will not be handed down it will be seized and taken. Now, inheritances can be both good and bad. After all, Ahab receives relent, relentance from God. And it's at this point, at the end of 1 Kings 21, when we are brought to our peak and height of distaste for Ahab, for all that he's already done wrong, at the very end, he relents. He repents and God relents. And the word of the Lord comes to Elijah in verse 29 saying, Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. I wonder how Joram felt or if he was aware of the inheritance he received with the crown. Because now instead of Ahab getting death and destruction brought on his house, it's now Joram who will receive all of this fate on him. And that takes place in 2 Kings 9, where he's shot and he's thrown in the field of Naboth so that exactly what Elijah said will be true. Joram inherited the sins of Ahab. And it makes me wonder, especially as we celebrate communion today, what if Joram had relented? What if Joram had humbled himself before God God's gracious, loving-kindness is so great that he was willing to forgive Ahab, to give him a measure of grace. Wow. And to know that Joram probably could have done the same. To know that no matter how far we've strayed away, for how many times we've messed up, for how many things we've done wrong, God's mercies are new every morning, even to someone like Ahab. Have you ever heard someone say As a response to the gospel, you know what? God can forgive other people, but not me. Ahab is the quintessential example that God can forgive even you, even anyone. That when we humble ourselves, God relents and says, Come, I'm not going to bring this disaster on you. Now, Joram has now inherited the wrath of God, but he too could have relented, could have repented, Inheritances are strange things. Sometimes we feel weird about getting something good that we didn't work for. We didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, and yet we received it. Maybe that makes us feel a little bit awkward, but that should raise the sense of responsibility with which we receive an inheritance. Maybe there's things that we inherited that we don't want and that we'd rather wash our hands of, but that's not our option either whether it's something you got from your parents, whether it's something you got from your country or your culture or your society, you might be able to say, this isn't my fault. I didn't create this problem. But if you did inherit the problem, then it is your responsibility. To once again think about Independence Day weekend. We probably have things that we love about where we live that we didn't work for or earn or deserve. And these are worth being thankful for. And like an inheritance of a vineyard with Naboth, are to be cared for, intended to, for continued blessing that we can hand off the world in a better place than the way it was before. But there's also problems. We all have opinions on what's wrong with the world. We all have fingers to point at someone. And especially if we can say, I didn't create this problem, someone else did. But we did inherit problems. What's it look like to take a mark of responsibility for even the problems that you didn't create? They're not your fault, but they are your problem. What does it look like to not point the finger at someone else to try to blame the Ahabs of this world, but to simply tend to your own vineyard until God calls you home or someone takes your vineyard from you? Inheritances are a strange thing. Even this morning in Elders, we were reminded of some promises that we made at baptism. Even what we believe, to a degree, is inherited. This is true of any of your major world religions. Parents raise their children to understand the faith that the parents have. Whether Judaism, Christianity, Islam, or uh, that's not actually the symbol for Buddhism, that's a symbol for Taoism, Um, but Buddhism symbols are less less popular and well-known. We inherit some of what we believe from our parents. We do, because our parents have tried to instill this in us. But the question is, just like an inheritance, at the moment you inherit something, it becomes your responsibility and your choice what you do with it. Just like Naboth could have sold his vineyard off, Probably gotten some good money for it and done whatever he wanted. We all, regardless of our age, from someone, maybe not from our biological family, but all of us from someone, have inherited some teaching on faith. And what is the question of responsibility that you have for the faith that you've inherited? Is it to maintain the status quo of it? Or is it to own it as your own or to disown it entirely? This is a paramount question that we have in the church today. How not only do we raise our children to know who Jesus is, but also to help them make those steps to make their faith their own, that they say, yes, the promises made over me in baptism are true. I claim this for my own. We get to celebrate that just this morning by having a baptized member of our congregation come to make profession of faith. And I won't give away who, but in two weeks we'll have a profession of faith here at North Holland to celebrate the faith that was inherited has been owned by someone and said, yes, this isn't just something I've inherited. This is mine to take care of, mine to believe in, and mine to hold on to. We as Christians have this responsibility. It's the promises we make in baptism to pass along this inheritance And to hope that it will be cared for well and that people will come to know who Jesus is. It's true of your faith and what you've been taught, it's true of the country you grew up in, but it's also true at the table. It's true at the table when we come to celebrate God's grace, to know that even God's grace is given in the same way it's spoken of as an inheritance. That we may be inherited the sins of our parents, but from God we inherit grace and forgiveness. This is what Jesus Christ offers from rich or poor, to old to young, to insider to outsider, to important to not important. What Jesus Christ offers is an inheritance, an inherited forgiveness of saying, I don't know what, I, well, God does know, but for all of us, we don't know what someone has inherited, but what we do know is the inheritance that Christ offers is to be right with God, to be adopted as a son or daughter of the true king, not the Ahabs of this world, but of the one living God. When we come to the table and take the bread and take the cup, we are claiming to inherit Christ's rightness with God for our own, not someone else's, but that this is ours. Coming to the table is a reminder of God's grace. The fact that we have an inheritance is undeniable. No matter how much you try to separate yourself from it, you can't get around genetics. The fact that we have an inheritance from our parents, from our society, from our culture, from the country we're born into or grew up in, this is undeniable. But what you do with your inheritance, both the good sides of it and the bad sides of it, that's up to you. And that sense of responsibility might define your calling and how you live out your life and how you live out your faith more than anything else in the world. Christ so freely adopts us into salvation and the forgiveness of sins. Which leads us to the simple question of what's your responsibility? And do you take this to be your own? Or is it just someone else's? Is this your faith? Or is this just the faith of your parents that you want to set aside? For those of us that have claimed it as our own, it's also our responsibility to pass it along well and to show that what Jesus taught us is trustworthy and true. To know that forgiveness of sins, eternal life, salvation, and the resurrection is ours to inherit freely. Freely, but with also great responsibility. So it is that we celebrate this at table. The three words, and I wish Jed were here because I'm going to give him a hard time about this for the rest of his life. At his ordination exam, the one question he got wrong was what are the three things we celebrate in communion? It's remembrance, communion, and hope. And now you all know that I just threw him under the bus and I'll, I'll admit it to him later. But remembrance, communion, and hope are part of our inheritance as sons and daughters of God. We come in remembrance knowing that what we have inherited is Christ's story, The story that Jesus Christ was born into the world, took on and assumed our flesh and blood, went to the cross, even though he had no sin, he became sin for us, died upon the cross, was buried, and rose again three days later and offers us eternal life. This is a story that has been passed down from generation to generation. It is an inheritance. But it is ours to own for ourselves. It is our responsibility to not only believe, but also to live into the reality. We remember Jesus Christ when we come to this table. Remembrance and communion. It is an inherited gift to be welcomed to a table. Think of your family get-togethers. It is a gift that you are just invited into this table. In the same way, at Christ's table, as governed by the church, Christ's table is an inheritance for us, a free invitation to come, to take the bread, to drink from the cup, and to remember that Christ is with us always. Just as last week we celebrated baptism, that Christ will never leave us or forsake us, but will be with us always, even to the end of the age. We celebrate that inherited communion, that Christ says, Come, all who believe in me, all who are seeking to follow me and grow in your faith, Come, come to the table. Commune with your brothers and sisters and commune with me. Remembrance and communion and hope. We all need hope. And life is hard when we lose hope. But the hope that we have inherited is not based on the circumstances of this world The hope that we have inherited is the end times vision that when Christ returns, he will make all things new. The crooked roads will become straight and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Our hope is based upon Christ's faithfulness and the vision that Christ has cast for us. Remembrance, a story to be owned and passed on. Communion, an invitation to freely come to be reminded of God's grace and hope. Hope that is based on God's faithfulness and that he so freely lets us inherit and in fact yearns and wants us to inherit. And when we come in spirit and in truth to celebrate that inheritance, the angels rejoice. For we take our inheritance in full measure. Our inheritance is to be sons and daughters of God to use the gifts that we have been given, and to glorify Christ's kingdom, and to build one another up. With this in mind, let's come to the table. Amen.
1: Let's pray. God, holy and right it is, and our joyful duty to give thanks to you at all times and in all places. You are our Lord and our creator, the almighty and everlasting God. You created heaven with all of its hosts and the earth with all its plenty. You have given us life and being and preserve us by your providence. And you have shown us the fullness of your love in sending into the world your son, Jesus Christ, the eternal word made flesh for us and for our salvation. For the precious gift of this mighty Savior who has reconciled us to you, we praise and we bless you, O God. With your whole church on earth and with all the company of heaven, we worship and adore your glorious name. God, you are holy. The Lord of power and might in heaven and earth are full of your glory. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Most righteous God, we remember in this supper the perfect sacrifice offered once on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ for the sin of the whole world. In the joy of his resurrection, in an expectation of his coming again, we offer ourselves to you as holy and living sacrifices, proclaiming the mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, but yet Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Send your Holy Spirit upon us, we pray that the bread which we break and the cup which we bless may be to us the communion of the body and the blood of Christ. Grant that, being joined together in him, we may attain to the unity of the faith and grow up in all things into Christ our Lord. And as this grain has been gathered from many fields into one loaf, and these grapes from many hills into one cup, grant, O Lord, that your whole church may soon be gathered from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.